you hope that it's a safe place. This isn't always the case. Tonight, I bring you a case involving drugs, stalking, sexual deviancy and death. This is the murder of Meng Mai Lang. Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Tonight, I bring you a horrific story about drugs, sexual deviancy, stalking and murder. Another case which is just so frustrating to research because it was so senseless, so disgusting and fueled by methamphetamines. But before that, I just want to say thanks to everyone that voted for the island at the Australian Podcast Awards. The votes are in and about a week before voting closed, the tally was taken off the webpage. So we have no real idea what the final count was. We will know soon who the top 10 are and I'm sure we've made it. The awards will be held at the Seymour Centre in May. So thanks again. And now let's get on with the show. Boom, fuckalunga. Now... Tonight is an extremely unpleasant case to bring you. Not that most of the cases aren't unpleasant, but this is another one of those cases that the victim lost a life for the momentary gratification of the perpetrator. It's not one where some random goes out to kill. It's an evil that lurked in the house of the victim, a trusted one that inside was just an insidious, perverted deviant. It's the story of 25-year-old Meng Mai Leng, or Michelle as she was known. Michelle, born in China, had moved to Australia in 2011 at the age of 20 to study for a business degree at UTS Sydney. That's the University of Technology Sydney. While in Australia, she would live with her auntie, uh, Mrs Cheung, and her daughter, Pi Tung Chan and son, Sing Wang Chang. Michelle not only loved her family and friends, but she loved life. She was active on social media during her stay in Australia, and you can see that she was active, had many friends, loved trying all types of food, and you can see she had a sweet tooth as well. She graduated in May of 2015 and planned on doing her master's degree. But we need to back it up a bit here. As I said, she came to Australia in 2011 to study and she stayed with her auntie, Mrs. Chung. Around this time, Miss Chung met 23-year-old Derek Barrett, an IT guy who was quite a bit younger than her. Barrett was born and raised on the central coast of New South Wales. Court records say that Derek Barrett had an unhappy childhood 
being teased and bullied at school and feeling socially isolated. Barrett said that he dreaded leaving the house and going to school. He fared a little better in high school, although he remained unpopular with fellow students. He became interested in computers from about the age of 12. His parents separated when he was a teenager and his mother later remarried. His father lives in Queensland. The offender's brother is said to have a a form of schizophrenia. He left school before completing year 10 and finished his school certificate through a TAFE college. Now that's uh, technical and further education. He undertook an IT course at TAFE and subsequently obtained employment in that field. He was fully employed up until October 2015 when he was retrenched. Barrett had two long-term relationships, the first when he was at school and the second with a neighbour. He met his wife, Miss Chung, in 2010 and they were married in 2012. At that, Barrett was aged about 23 years old. Miss Chung was 21 years older at 44. Although Barrett said that his marriage was good at the start, the couple's intimacy diminished and he felt as if he and his wife had drifted apart. His wife, who'd previously expressed a desire for children with him, later changed her mind, leaving Barrett feeling rejected and inadequate. He began to use the services of sex workers. So Barrett, Miss Chung, Michelle, Pitung Chan and Sing Wang Chang all lived together. They'd lived in several places in and around Sydney and in 2014 they moved to an apartment in Beamish Street, Campsie, about a 20 minute drive southwest of Sydney. Now I did a bit of digging and although Barrett was retrenched in 2015, he had been sacked from other jobs even before he met Miss Chung. Now he got sacked in 2009 because of anger issues at work. As the court would say, things in the house were not as rosy as they were shown on the outside. Barrett had started using meth from about the time he got married in 2012. Now, this is such a destructive drug. It has a disinhibiting effect and can make users more aroused, elated, reckless and, of course, sometimes violent. Anyway, as Barrett and Miss Chung were drifting apart, he started to turn his attention to not only Michelle, but also his stepdaughter, Pitung Chang. Now, a trigger warning. Some of this is just sick. This guy is a pervert. In September of 2014, Barrett put his mobile phone in the shared bathroom facing the shower area. Pitung Chan, his stepdaughter, entered the bathroom to shower. So she undressed, showered, dried herself and then dressed herself all the time with Barrett's phone recording. This went on for nearly 15 minutes. Almost a year later, in September 2015, Barrett, probably on meth and highly aroused, entered Pitung Chan's bedroom just before 7am and filmed her sleeping. He stood over her and started wanking himself the sick cunt. 
The video he took that morning lasted about two minutes, and at the end, Barrett is seen to flick what the court calls fluid, but in most probability was semen from his fingers towards his stepdaughter's pyjamas. Shortly after this, Barrett is retrenched from his IT job. Now before this, he had been continually employed in the IT industry, although there is evidence that he had a bit of a temper, whether this was meth-fueled rage or not, but his temper did lose him at least one job. Now, it is at this time that Barrett starts to feel depressed. He begins to overeat and gains weight. He starts to smoke ice on a more regular basis, probably because he didn't have to go to work and was sitting around the house all day. While on ice, he started to go for days without sleep and was getting highly sexually aroused. He was also using synthetic cannabis to try and help on his way down. In mid-January 2016, Barrett again set up his mobile phone in the bathroom just before Michelle this time undressed, showered, dried herself and again got dressed. This recording lasted about 33 minutes. Later in the month, Barrett entered Michelle's bedroom in the early hours of the morning, again probably high on meth and sexually aroused. With his dick in the video frame, he focused on Michelle's butt and underwear, and after 48 seconds, it shows him ejaculating. In mid-February 2016, Barrett again enters Michelle's bedroom while she's sleeping and records her, panning up and down her body while wanking himself in shot. In a second recording a few minutes later, he records himself wanking himself off again with Michelle in the background. Court records state that during January and February, when he made his most recent recordings of Michelle, he was using two to three eight balls of ice each day, where an eight ball is approximately 3.5 grams in weight. Now, that is a lot, and he wouldn't be sleeping for days on end. Without sleep, he would have started to live in some surreal psychotic state, probably hallucinating and becoming paranoid, also anxious and let alone incredibly sexually aroused. He was also watching a lot of porn. So, you think, does anyone know what's going on? Does his wife know what he's doing up early and not in bed? Do the girls know he's in their rooms? Have they noticed him not sleeping and acting any way weird? Well, it looks like Miss Chung, Barrett's wife, is often away for work in Wollongong. So there are times when Barrett can do his perving around and not be noticed at least by her. It looks like the girls had no idea what he was doing either and probably had very little to do with him on a day-to-day basis. In fact, when you look at him, Barrett just looks like a slightly plump, nerdy IT guy. So between the 1st of April and the 24th of April 2016, Miss Chung was away with her work in Wollongong while Michelle and Pitung Chan remained at the Campsie home. Miss Chung's son by this time had returned to China. On April the 19th, Michelle takes a photo in Hyde Park, Sydney 
with a bunch of kids playing with one of those big bubble makers. There's a huge bubble stretched out for three or four metres. St Mary's Church is in the background. Now, I can see this spot from my window, and so many of her posts are from where I live. I'm not trying to claim a hometown murder at all. It, it just gets you thinking, but I probably ran into Michelle many times, and then something evil happens, and then that person's just gone. Here she's going about her life, and it's a really active life, and then gone. Anyway, that was April the 19th. 2016. So Barrett's wife, Miss Chung, had been away since the 1st of April. And on the 21st, Michelle has lunch with a friend at Sydney Fish Markets. Her Opal travel card is swiped at Campsie Station at about 4.32pm after catching the train home. At 4.42pm, CCTV records her entering her apartment building. She spoke to several friends that night on the phone and sent a text message at midnight. Now this is another trigger warning for the next few minutes. In the early hours of the 22nd of April, Barrett enters Michelle's room, approaches her and holds her down. He strips her naked and then he binds her hands behind her back and uses heavy duct tape over her mouth to gag her. Barrett then proceeds to take photos of her, most focusing on her breasts or, in close-up, her genitals. In one single image, he takes a photo of her face. She looks terrified. For some of the images to be taken, Barrett must have forced Michelle to part her legs so that she can be seen lying humiliatingly exposed. At this time, Michelle is alive and physically uninjured. At some time after 8.39am on the morning of the 22nd of April 2016, when the last of the photos were taken, and 3.19am on the 24th of April, when Barrett left the Campsie apartment to drive to Lake Menorah, he takes Michelle into the bathroom and kills her by stabbing her to death. Now, just to be clear, I've read most of that from court records and I will continue to do so. In fact, most of today's show has come from court records. The injuries to Michelle show what was a vicious attack upon her and her struggle against that attack for her life. When a post-mortem examination was later conducted, 31 separate wounds were noted some being stab wounds and some being incised wounds. All of these wounds were consistent with having been inflicted with a knife. There were also numerous blunt force injuries. The lethal wound was one to Michelle's throat, which almost completely transected her larynx, penetrating 40 millimetres into the body. There were nine wounds to the left hand and two to the right hand and wrist, consistent with defensive injuries. The remaining 19 wounds were to the head, neck and torso. Whilst the wound to the larynx was lethal, blood loss from the other wounds could have contributed to death. Examination of the tissues of the lungs revealed that Michelle survived these injuries for a time after the wound to the larynx was inflicted. The blunt force injuries, of which there were many, are all consistent with post-mortem injuries, 
likely to have resulted from the manner in which the offender sought to dispose of Michelle's body, which I will go into now. At 4.14pm on April 22nd, so this is the afternoon after Barrett attacked Michelle, Pitung Chan arrived home and left again at 7.29pm. She noticed that Barrett spent most of his time, except a brief moment, in the bathroom. She said the shower was running the whole time. At one stage, Pitung Chang knocked on the door of the bathroom to ask for shampoo. Barrett opened the door a crack and passed the shampoo out. He told her that the bathroom smelled and that she should use the second bathroom. She did not, however, detect any bad odour. Also, she did not see Michelle. At 7.51pm, Barrett called his father and his father would say later that he did not sound out of the ordinary. Barrett did not leave the house on the evening of the 22nd or the 23rd other than to go to the waste disposal area at 4.46am, 5.17am and twice around 2.30pm. At 6.21pm on the 23rd of April, Barrett had a 40-minute telephone call with his mother. He arranged to drive to her home at Gwandalan and collect some money, about 300 bucks that had been given to his parents by his wife about a month earlier. Miss Cheung returned home from Wollongong at 7.41pm, saw Barrett on the computer and then went out again at 8.30pm. She did not see Michelle. Barrett stayed at home for the rest of the night with Michelle's body hidden away. At 3.19am on the 24th, Barrett takes the builder's lift to his car and leaves the apartment with Michelle's body in the boot or the trunk, as you say in the US. He texts Miss Chung and asks her what time he has to pick her up from work. He then drives north to the Memora State Conservation Area and arrives there at about 7.27am. Now this is normally a less than two hour drive, however it takes him four hours. His phone pings phone towers in the area. He drives to Snapper Point gets Michelle's body out of the car, which is wrapped in black plastic. He then hurls her over the edge of the cliff into Fraser Blowhole, about 30 metres below. Using his phone, he then proceeds to take several photos of the cliffs and the water off the blowhole. I mean, what the fuck? Now this is 9.19am. So what's he been doing there? other than what I've just told you, for nearly two hours I do not know. It took him four hours to drive a two-hour drive, and then he hung around the blowhole for another two hours. Anyway, while he's there taking photos, two walkers see him and he says to them, I wouldn't recommend going down there. I mean, what? Barrett also spoke to a park officer who saw him there, and Barrett got in his car and sped away. I mean, that's not sus, is it? At 10.30am, a walker saw a body floating face down in the water. Police rescue were called to recover the body. Barrett, at this stage, had driven to his parents' house and collected the $300 that was owed to his wife. He didn't seem to be acting strange, according to them. 
Barrett then drove back to Sydney and collected his wife from Hurstville train station at 10pm. On arrival at home, Miss Cheung asked where Michelle was as she'd been trying to call her during the day without any success. Barrett told her he had no idea. They both searched the house and of course, Michelle was nowhere to be found. Barrett tried calling Michelle's phone in front of his wife just as part of his bullshit. Next afternoon, with Michelle nowhere to be found, Barrett and Miss Cheung go to Campsy Police Station to report her missing. Barrett said that Michelle had not been seen since midnight on the 21st of April, but claimed to have spoken to her at 10am on the 22nd by telephone. However, there was no such call made from his phone to Michelle at that time. He and Miss Cheung also later reported Michelle as missing to the Chinese embassy. Barrett then tried to create a narrative that Michelle had been seeing a guy from Wollongong and suggested, and now get this, suggested that he may have abducted and murdered her. I mean, what the fuck? This guy really has no fucking idea on how to lie. He also said that this mystery man had probably dumped her body in Wollongong. Where would you get this from if she's gone missing for a day and apparently she might have some boyfriend in Wollongong? Wouldn't you just think maybe she's gone to Wollongong and her battery's flat or she's lost her phone or whatever, she'll probably turn up. He's already saying, he, oh, this mystery man must have abducted a murderer, probably dumped a body. Anyway, on the 26th of April, After linking the body in the water to the missing persons report, police go to the Campsie home to get DNA samples. While there, Barrett keeps interjecting when police speak to Miss Chung and Pitung Chan. They saw this as very suspicious, as anybody would. Barrett told them she was internet dating. Of course. Saying something like that will be so easy to find out if it's true or not. And, of course, it was untrue. Police noticed Barrett's car covered in dust. Now, this dust may have come from the dirt road at Snapper Point. He he didn't even clean his car. Later, Barrett gave a statement to police saying that he'd last seen Michelle on the evening of the 21st of April when they were home alone together. He said that maybe we had salad for dinner and watched a movie. Then he said that was probably two guns. He said that she went to bed in her room at 12am or 1am and he gave a detailed description of her pyjamas. He said she closed her bedroom door. Normally she puts a rubber doorstop on the inside of a door so you can't get in. More like not so Anyone can't get in. Just so you can't get in, you dirty pervert. Fuck. Anyway, now, this tells us a little bit about what Michelle suspected or knew Barrett was up to by trying to jam a door stopper into the door at night. And what's this Barrett being able to give a detailed description of her pyjamas? This is just reeking with fucking creepiness. Barrett told police that he woke up in the afternoon of 22nd of April and Michelle was not in the apartment. He assumed she'd gone out. 
He did not see her that day and remained at home. He gave a detailed account of his activities. The following day, Saturday the 23rd of April, Barrett said he sent a text message to Michelle asking if she would be home for dinner, as he was a little bit concerned. He said he'd spoken to his father and mother on the telephone that day and commented that it had been weeks since he'd been to the Central Coast. He mentioned that Michelle had been to the Central Coast in the past to see the beaches. Now, if Peter Hyatt did a statement analysis on all this, Barrett would be fucked. By the way, Peter Harris does statement analysis and he's really, really good at what he does. You can Google him if you want and he will feature when I do my McCann case. Anyway, Barrett then told police he spent the rest of Saturday night watching Chinese TV, then he went to bed. On the 23rd, he slept in, then when he got up, he went to get food at a drive through restaurant and then picked up Miss Cheung from Hurstville. Barrett added that over the next few days, he kept sending text messages to Michelle's phone with both the normal SMS and on her WeChat app. He was again adding to the narrative he was building that she was going out with some German guy from Wollongong and chasing other guys on Tinder. He claimed he found this out by contacting friends on her social media accounts. Wow, this guy is really coming out with stuff the police will be able to check and find out it's all a lie. And then, why would he be lying? Well, we know why, and it won't take the cops long either to know why either. Barrett told police he went to Michelle's bedroom, grabbed her camera, and downloaded a photo of her to give them. And finally, he told police that on April the 26th, My wife and I went to the Sydney police station because we heard about a girl found on the central coast who was found dead in the water. She was described as Asian appearance and 170 centimetres, which is the same size as Michelle. We found out this because one of my wife's friends sent a story to her phone. Fearing it could be Michelle, we went to the police station to see if there was any more information. He then said, there's nothing more I can comment on about this. I've told Detective Nathan Rose everything I am aware of and everything I can remember. This statement is true to the best of my knowledge and belief. He's added, there's no person that I can think of that would ever want to hurt Michelle. Right. So on the 29th of April, Michelle's body was identified from a DNA match and police asked Barrett to attend the police station for another interview. He was interviewed under caution, and when police told him they suspected Michelle had been murdered, Barrett replied, and get this, we suspected that for a couple of days at least. So he started adding more detail to his original statement. Now this is a sure sign that someone is trying to build a narrative to put police off their trail. He added that he'd gone out to dinner on the night of the 25th with two friends and said that she went out with a female friend on the 19th to the casino. He then added a lot of detail to the night of the 21st. Now this is the night before Michelle was attacked. He said, We had fun watching a movie together. We laughed and sorry this is emotional. It's kind of like the last moment we had together. He then said during the early hours of the morning of the 24th, now remember this is the morning he disposed of her body, 
He said he drove to a train station near Sydney to meet a female friend, but he could not recollect exactly where. He added that he may have had some intimacy with his hand. At this stage, it looked like Barrett realised he wasn't making any sense and he asked to see the custody manager at the police station. He then asked the custody manager if he could see a lawyer and his family. He was then cautioned and interviewed further in regards to the murder of Michelle Lang. He denied being in the area on the day that Michelle was found, even though police showed him that his mobile phone had pinged towers in that area, and his mother, who lived nearby, confirmed he visited them at that time. They showed him a photo of a car entering the park that looked the same as his, but he denied it was his and that the photo was too blurry to tell. Asked if it was someone else driving the car, and he said the person was unknown. He also denied being sexually attracted to Michelle and denied murdering her. He said he did not know the blowhole area and had not disposed of her body at Snapper Point. When asked if there was any kind of closure you'd wish to give the family of Meng Mai, he said, I'm sorry for their loss. That's it. He was then charged with her murder. They took his mobile phone and although there are a large amount of photos deleted police were able to recover them and he should have known that being an IT guy. Police wouldn't get much out of Barrett other than he couldn't remember that much over the period because he'd been smoking ice and marijuana. During psychological examinations of Barrett, he would refuse to discuss what he'd done. Again, he said he had little or no recollection. In court, he would have to answer to five criminal offences. Three counts of committing an act of indecency, one count of detaining a person for advantage or kidnapping, and one count of murder. There were a further 21 offences before the court that Barrett asked to be taken into account when he was sentenced for murder. There were 19 counts of filming the private parts of a person without consent for sexual gratification and two counts of installing a device for the purpose of filming private parts without consent. He entered a plea of guilty on the 27th of August 2017. Here the judge commented on the victim impact statements. He said, Whilst the death of Ms Leng had affected all of her family, it is her mother, Zhang Mai, whose loss is the greatest. Miss Zhang has told the court that her daughter, Meng Mai, was her only child and she feels shattered and lost as a result of her death. In the Chinese tradition, children look after and support their parents in old age and Miss Zhang has been deprived of a future spent with her daughter, being cared for by her. Her health has been affected by her loss and she struggles to cope. Miss Ling's grandparents too have suffered, with the health of both deteriorating. Her grandmother has sadly died since Miss Ling was murdered. Miss Ling's aunt, the offender's wife, feels responsible for Miss Ling's death, blaming herself for having worked the few extra days that meant she was not at home on the evening of the 21st of April. Her cousins, with whom she lived in Sydney, have also been badly affected by Miss Ling's murder. Pitung Chan, who herself is a victim of the offender's perversion, has withdrawn from her studies and has isolated herself from her friends. 
Sing Wang Chan, like his mother, feels responsible for what happened to Miss Leng. He reasons that had he not returned to China before these events, he would have been in Kamsi and able to protect his cousin. Miss Leng was a daughter, granddaughter, cousin, niece and friend, and her loss to those who loved her is not just the cause of great grief and pain, but must also be quite unfathomable. They must be left wondering how and why these terrible crimes could have happened. Miss Leng's family have my deepest sympathy. Finally, he said, it must be understood, however, that these proceedings cannot be the measure of the value of Miss Leng's life or of the harm done by her murder. That is something that no court can redress. In reply to the victim's statement and the judge's comments, Barrett said, Well, actually, fuck what Barrett said. I'm not giving him any platform here. He's so full of shit. What I will say, he said, is this. I understand I did an unforgivable thing, but I can't understand why I got there into that situation. Now, he did admit to being in love with his stepdaughter, Pitung, and that he got very angry with Michelle if she teased her, as, you know, as sisters or cousins might do, you know. But he's just sick. Barrett reckoned he was remorseful, but this was rejected by the court. You see, if you refuse to discuss what you did and keep telling people that you have amnesia about what happened or that time, then you can't be remorseful, as you claim you can't even remember what you did. So let's cut to the chase. Barrett was sentenced to 46 years to date from the 29th of April 2016, expiring on the 28th of April 2062. There will be a non-parole period of 34 years and 6 months, expiring on the 28th of October 2050. The sentences that would have been imposed had separate sentences been fixed are... 1. For the offence of murder of Miss Lang, taking into account 21 charges, a term of 40 years and 6 months imprisonment. 2. For the offence of kidnapping, a term of 9 years imprisonment. And 3. For the offences of committing an act of indecency, 13 months imprisonment for each count. So, not that it helps the grieving family and friends, but at least this is finally some sort of stiff sentence. So, what do I have to say about this despicable act? Well, what I reckon is that Barrett always had a thing for Michelle and Pitung, even when he married Miss Cheung. He probably married her to get closer to the girls. Once his marriage started to break down, his stepdaughter and stepniece became objects of his desire. It looks like he was using ice to a certain degree throughout his marriage, but once he was retrenched in 2015, this drug use increased. He was already perving on the girls, taking pictures and wanking himself over them, but once he'd lost his job, he had so much more spare time. He started using ice more and was getting more sexually frustrated. I reckon then, in a haze of drug use, probably over a few days... It's when he lost it and attacked and murdered Michelle and then disposed of her body. Now, this bender he was on, and this is by no means an excuse for his action, this bender drove him to commit this despicable crime. 
Now remember, although we now know he was a pervert before he murdered Michelle, other than that, he had no criminal record. What I think, and this would have become very real to Barrett once he was arrested and he fully came down off the drugs he was using, is the realisation of what he did. That's why I only read that little bit he said in court. You know, the bit where he says, I understand I did an unforgivable thing, but I can't understand why I got there into that situation. It was the meth haze you put yourself in, Barrett, and your underlying perversions and deviancies. You now have a long time to think about how you got to where you are, you sick predator. Now, the another awful part of all this is in the period where he was taking the photos and before he took her to the bathroom to stab her to death, he could have just stopped at that moment. I mean, he didn't rape the girl at all in regards to what rape is in accordance to the legal definition of it. He'd bound her, so that's kidnapping, and he'd taken photos of her. Now, if he just stopped at that point and walked away, okay, there would have been this trauma from Michelle and all this bullshit would have erupted, but she'd still be alive. He had that choice at that moment to walk away, but he chose to murder her. That's just a senseless, senseless waste of life. Well, that's about it for this case. It just makes me sick. Like I said, it's just no reason whatsoever for it. So my thoughts go out to the friends and family of Michelle. Geez, it's hard sometimes to segue from the end of the show into the, you know, the last bit. But we are here, Islanders, so just let's just have a moment. So this week we've got a few Patreon shout-outs to do. I'd like to thank Marie Paris, thank you very much. We've got Scott Quinn, thanks mate. Chris Key and Malcolm E. Williams, thank you all so much for your support. And thanks so much to all present and past Patreon supporters of the island. Now, I am a little bit behind this month on the Patreon awards of mugs, T-shirts and stickers. I will send out the stickers next week. And if you are eligible for a mug or shirt, please check your email as I will need to find out exactly what you want and confirm your postal address. Plus, when I do send you something, please let me know you've received it in case I need to track it down. Now, we all know True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast. I keep it ad-free as I know you don't like the ads and neither do I. If you want to support the island financially for as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland and check out the levels and rewards. Alternatively, you can do a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Also, you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, beach towels and I just got a fantastic tote bag in the post the other day. My favourite are the mugs, the mugs of rage. They're all available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Remember, listeners, please don't order black mugs until further notice. I can't take them down without taking everything down. I do have keychains, lapel pins, stickers, and a few, few beer coozers, 
koozies left. But you need to contact me directly for those. That can be done by emailing me at cambo at truecrimeisland.com. That's also the best way to contact me personally for anything else such as case requests or just to say bon vagalanga. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate and review and tell your friends, family and workmates about the island. And if they don't know how to tune in, show them. Search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook. So that's about it for the show tonight. There's no promos. I will be getting back into the promo thing probably in the next month. So lots of love to Maggie James and I'm your host Cambo and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Bon fuck a long time.